Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting, home of the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, Flight School. MIPS Flight School helps clinicians earn their highest possible MIPS score in a group coaching setting and at an affordable price. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with the one and only Grace Cordovano. Grace helps people when they are in the most need to navigate the healthcare system. Her compassion and her empathy shine through in all of her work. We learned a lot in this conversation and hope you will too. So let's get started. I'm Grace Cordovano. I'm a board certified patient advocate specializing in the oncology space. And one of the main questions that I get is what on earth is a patient advocate and what is a board certified patient advocate? And essentially what that is, is I do my advocacy work as a profession. I'm hired by patients to help them navigate their diagnosis and connect them with the information and the tools that they need to meet their healthcare goals wherever they may be. And I also do a lot of pro bono work because not everyone can, of course, afford a patient advocate, but I have been fortunate to build a wonderful network of resources. I've been doing this personally and professionally for over 20 years, and I listen to people's challenges and try to at least point them in the right direction. And sometimes that's all it takes is pointing someone to where they need to go and what they need to do in the space of cancer as well as many other chronic illnesses, rare diseases, or what I call life-altering diagnoses, one of the most common questions that people have when they get their diagnosis is, what do I do now or what do I do next? And that's really what my piece of the puzzle is, being what I call a healthcare navigating solutionist and really being a bridge builder for people when they feel like they're so alone and have no one to turn to. So, Grace, can you give us an example of maybe a a patient you've helped in the past or recently and maybe provide some just a position because you called out, you know, 
patient-specific goals. And sometimes when people have a life-altering diagnosis, especially cancer, depending on the stage or the type and what's available, I might imagine you help people navigate, you know, really wanting to go very head-on into this, looking for experimental treatments. Maybe they're in the prime of their life looking to do anything they can to get better. And then you may also meet people that are nearer to the end of life and may just value quality and still need some care efforts and patient navigation, but their goals might be quite different as they are in a different place in their life for whatever reason. Can you give us some examples? Sure, absolutely. So I want to point out that the people that I work with are from point of diagnosis through survivorship or end-of-life care planning. So I've really been humbled to see such a broad spectrum of goals, and it really is personalized medicine, what we're talking about, really delivering solutions at N of one because no two people are really alike. Uh, Medicine does a great job of managing clinical issues in cancer, but we do an awful job in managing life with a diagnosis. And I try to understand and ask each patient and their loved one. I'm a firm believer in the care partners playing a big role in this healthcare trajectory. What do these goals look like? Some people are laser focused. Connect me with the second and third opinion with experts in my disease, with the hospitals that have the best technologies. Connect me with the best clinical trials. What are the cutting edge genetic tests or up and coming screening opportunities that may be out there? What should I be considering so that I know what to expect three months, six months down the line? Some people say, I want to do everything from a life perspective. My goals are attending my daughter's wedding, attending my granddaughter's recital, traveling to a particular location with my family, finishing my piano lessons and my recital. These are all extremely important pieces of the puzzle that I work on because it helps to guide treatment planning. If we only focus on the clinical, we miss out when the person walks out of the clinic or out of the doctor's office on how they're going to survive life with the diagnosis. And that's where we see a big disconnect with what we call patients being non-adherent, non-compliant, not taking their medications, not really taking care of themselves. Because the treatment plan that we've come up with doesn't work with life with a diagnosis. Oftentimes, people with a cancer diagnosis, I'm going to use cancer because that's my area of expertise, go home and they still have to be a parent. They still have a job they have to show up to or two jobs. They're caring for an aging parent. They have their own career aspirations. Their home needs work. The laundry needs to be done. How do we look at all of this really as a whole person situation and try to come up with something that's going to be reasonable, but dynamic. As the disease and treatment progress, things change. So it can't be something that's set in stone. It's got to be flexible. And that's where I try to bring the patients and families concerns into the healthcare medical conversation so that we can sort of meet in the middle and have a crystal clear plan that can be revised as we go along. So Grace, when you're helping people outside of the clinical things and you brought something up and you said, you know, my goals are maybe just to attend my granddaughter's recital. What does that look like for a patient? What are you doing 
from a navigation perspective or as a solution to help them achieve that? What do you go back and do and how do you begin to attack the, that an individual goal such as that? You know, when you have something like cancer, we know that there's a lot of treatment related side effects. There's no surprises there. There are significant advancements happening where certain treatments have lesser side effects. But I like to focus the conversation on what life events, near term, long term, are important to a patient. That might mean reviewing the schedule of chemotherapy. That might mean incorporating palliative care right off the get-go. That might mean more touch points with the physician and the nurses and the care team and perhaps maybe a psychiatrist, a social worker, a spiritual advisor. That might mean using a technology that carefully is able to record patient-reported outcomes to monitor side effects. And when we see that there's a turn for the worst, catch it early before there's an eventual admission to the ER. And this takes work and partnership and collaboration from both sides, from the care team, as well as the patient and their loved ones at home. Grace, I'm thinking you must have seen so many different patient journeys. Is there anything that's sort of trending over time that you continue to be challenged by or find some sort of bottleneck in the system that if somebody is sort of in need of a patient advocate that you have sort of a nugget of wisdom that they might be able to take home with them today? I tell all of my, uh, there's so many bottlenecks, but the one that is consistent, and I've been doing this for over 20 years, and it's still a massive problem. And it's access to information, data blocking, and the inability for patients to be able to access their medical records and their health information when they need them. When you receive a life-altering diagnosis, you need to get a second opinion. In order to do so in oncology, you have to gather your medical records, which includes not just your clinical notes and test results, but your images on CDs perhaps your pathology slides, perhaps your tissue blocks from any tumor or tissue sample that was removed. And it is a massive undertaking. Many second opinions and highly acclaimed experts within particular disease states will not schedule an appointment until you have gathered all of your health information and sent it to their attention to review so they can see if indeed they are a fit to put you on their schedule, or perhaps a colleague might be a better fit, or you're not a fit at all. This can take on the scale of weeks. 10 years ago, I was diagnosed with advanced lymphoma, and I personally witnessed this bottleneck. It took weeks to get my information to be seen for a second opinion, and ultimately four and a half months to clear my diagnosis as a misdiagnosis and a fungal infection I had acquired on my honeymoon. And that was a pivotal point for me because here I was, someone who spoke English, had insurance. I worked in the city at the time. I was blocks walking distance from a cancer center of excellence. I had a PhD and a master's in biochemistry of metabolic disease. I had a family that was supportive. I had a job and a career setting that was supportive and flexible to accommodate all of my appointments and tests and biopsies and surgery and time off and gave me the flexibility to work from home. And I was brought to my knees. I couldn't do it. I felt so alone. And all I worried about was 
what was going to happen? Was I going to die? It was just at night laying there willing to make a deal with the devil to make this go away. And if I couldn't do it with all of the privileges that I have been afforded in my life with my education and all the support that I have, what does everybody else do? And that's really where I dove into patient advocacy because we had to find a way to level the playing field. And I could see the struggle that people faced. I grew up not speaking English. My family is from Poland. And while I was born here, I was encouraged to speak Polish at home. Um, It took a while for me to learn how to speak English. And when I did, I became a natural navigator and attended uh, appointments with family and friends to help translate what was going on. So as a kid, here I was navigating the healthcare system because there weren't any Polish translators. And many of my family and friends didn't have insurance and we didn't have an understanding of what was going on. And I was like 12. So I have an understanding from that perspective as well for immigrant children, people who don't speak language, who don't have access to information and the tools and technology or the finances. What are they doing and what is our ecosystem doing to do a better job so that this information is universally accessible and people have that knowledge base to connect with that next step. Grace, you mentioned that you had you know, an issue when you were on your honeymoon and the misdiagnosis of lymphoma, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately a fungal infection. And Mm -hmm. this young, this perspective is a young person with family members not speaking English. Is there, is that what was the impetus for you going down this path and embarking on this journey to be a board certified advocate? Sure. They definitely played a huge role in what I ended up doing now professionally. But my mom also was diagnosed with breast cancer on her first mammogram. She was only 48. And I had encouraged her to go to that first mammogram. And here they found a very aggressive breast cancer. She ended up being aggressively treated, mastectomy, reconstruction. She is a survivor. But what really impacted me, I was in college at the time, was that the doctors told us there's no cure. And I couldn't believe that. And I looked at them and I said... You know, I'm looking at them, but this is my mom you're talking about. What do you mean there's no cure? And I guess you just don't know what you don't know. You assume here in America, where I lived down the road from Hoffman LaRoche Global Headquarters, a lot of industry influence in the New York, New Jersey area, that there were just cutting edge treatments for anything. And that was an earth shattering moment for me. I remember going to her first treatment and fainting when the oncologist was reading the treatment side effects and what to expect because I couldn't believe that this is what, how could she possibly endure this? And I remember when I came around after fencing, I was ostracized and yelled at that, you know, I caused a disruption in the, in the clinic and I had asked if I could lay down and they said, our beds are for patients. So that lack of empathy, I think that's something that really has resonated with me as well. The complete lack of empathy in our clinical encounters and this lack of respecting a person's need for dignity. I think that's something also that's a driving force that we treat people like their diagnosis and not a person living their life with this diagnosis that has completely maybe pulled the rug out from under them. Wow. I feel like anyone who has you on their side is so fortunate. 
And it's not that common of a profession as far as I understand. You work like for yourself and on your own. Is that correct? That's right. So this is definitely a new and up and coming profession. It's been around for about 10 years. I read an article in the New York Times probably about 11 years ago that mentioned patient advocacy as a profession. And it was at that moment, uh, this was after my misdiagnosis about a, a year later where all the stars really aligned. My, my whole childhood, my education, my experience with family members and my mom and grad school and my career all aligned and pointed me that, wow, the patient advocacy, this is what I want to do. And I took a little bit of interest in business and finance because, you know, they don't teach you that when you're a science major and opened my own practice. And this is through the Alliance of Professional Health Advocates. They now have an internationally credentialed and recognized board certification program to elevate the profession and ensure that there's a common exceptional knowledge base as well as upholding the apex of ethics in all of our professional conduct. Grace, do you find when within that network of professionals that are operating with that great deal of integrity, and you obviously have a very robust background, do you find that there are a lot of other professionals in this space that have been led there because of either their personal experience or that of a family member or friend? 100%. There is something that happens. And, and it's not just, I want to point out, it's not just with professional advocates. It's with, it's with many patient leaders and advocates in their respective disease spaces. I think what happens is there's this almost Phoenix-like transformation or this metamorphosis that you go through. Once tragedy strikes you, you grow into this new person. You can't unsee and unhear and unfeel what you have seen and gone through. And it manifests and almost this stick of dynamite that's lit and you feel this urgency to do better or you see the pitfalls that people face. And now you have this knowledge base combined with this passion and it becomes unstoppable. And I have so much admiration for the advocates that I have been blessed to collaborate with and meet over the years in all the different therapeutic and disease spaces because they're really championing so much amazing work and change, but it's that passion that they ooze that's so invigorating. And I think that invigorates us all as we work in our own respective arenas and spaces. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on patreon.com and let's make something amazing together. 
You know, that kind of sets us up for our second question. And think we ask all of our guests, given everything that you have seen, you probably are have a, a lens through which you see healthcare. And so from your perspective, given all the challenges and issues that patients and what, well, just we all face, if you could solve anything with, you know, the snap of the fingers or with a magic wand or without concern of time or resources, money, what problem would you solve and why? I would solve the problem with data blocking and transparency. I am literally still reeling from the reports of this new Google project, Project Nightingale. And as you know, as I mentioned before, patients, there's no course on becoming a patient. There's no degree in being a professional patient. You're basically dragged and dropped into a system and hope you can learn to swim or at least stay afloat. We are advancing digital health, digital technology. We have all of these machine learning algorithms and AI and really looking to advance healthcare and use data for good, but we've left patients out in the dark. So not only can they not get access to their medical records when they need them, they also are not being included in the discussions on healthcare of the future. I feel that HIPAA is being abused. People are being taken advantage of. And there's a lack of transparency surrounding what human data science is. Many in the business sector will say, well, this is business as usual. This is how it's always been done. But patients are now better connected and more informed than ever before, as are their care partners. And their ears have really perked up, and this is not sitting well with them. While there's great efforts to improve interoperability and data blocking from a regulatory and policy standpoint, the reality boots on the ground in our local communities is that patients are struggling and are facing data blocking everywhere. And they're also not informed about what is happening on a day-to-day basis, what research really means, what data aggregators are, and what de-identification and how their records when they enter a hospital system are going to be used, and what direct-to-consumer genetic tests can do with your data and your saliva sample, and how you can be proactive and opt-in and opt-out and really give informed, crystal-clear proactive consent. I see this as a major problem because what we're doing is learning about these practices through press releases. And this elicits shock and visceral emotions. And we could do such a better job across the board by being more transparent, by working towards partnership with patients, by embracing choice to participate in human data science or opt out. But I think that that's going to require time, trust, and also certain businesses and entities to actually go out of business because perhaps their innovations aren't really what this ecosystem needs. I'm a big advocate and actually an e-patient ambassador for a PCORI-funded project on palliative care. And 
there's such an opportunity to provide more life-focused care, which would also include covering social determinants of health and having healthy conversations about end of life, which is something, uh, those are two major things that we're not doing a very good job on. I'm interested because we deal a lot in the theory and the regulation side. So this whole push to provide patients access to their data, you know, that is something that is being measured. Do you feel like it's kind of just a token at this time? Like it's not really sharing the information that the patient actually needs? Can you, what do you, what's your opinion about that? We're definitely not measuring this correctly. And we're also, there's no accountability. So a lot of hospitals will say, we're patient-centered. We have a patient portal. No one's using it. I mean, I, I read plenty of press releases and reports saying that, I think the statistic is, you know, we have a patient portal, a hospital system say, well, you know, only one in 10 patients logs in and uses it. We're not educating people about the value of their health information. When you think about, let's say, a hospital encounter, let's say you were in the hospital or a loved one is in the hospital, think about while you're sitting in that room, it's a revolving door. You have doctors, nurses, fellows, residents, housekeeping, TV, food services, flower deliveries, concierge, social workers, discharge planning, a chaplain. I could go on and on of all the people that visit you in your hospital room. The one person that doesn't come to your room is someone from medical records, never, to help you plan from the bedside proactively for your discharge. Many of our patients are going to need a follow-up. Many of these follow-ups are useless if the information isn't sent to their doctor. Often, there's a, if, if the patient is too sick to interact or maybe that not tech-savvy, that's a pushback we get, there's usually a care partner, a child, a spouse, a friend, a loved one that would be more than happy to answer a few questions to help coordinate that care. You know, I've started a venture called Unblock Health, which is addressing just this, being able to give patients a tool to hold the system accountable. We are very quick to blame patients and say they're lazy, they're stupid, they're non-compliant, they miss their appointments and, and a laundry list of problems with patients, how they need to be nudged to improve their life, their compliance, their behaviors, their lifestyle. But what if the patient is not the problem? What if it's the ecosystem? What if you have a super engaged patient that's laser focused, but they can't get their records? They can't get access to transparency. They're using a technology that doesn't give them real-time access to actionable information. Or what if they find errors in their records? How can they get that corrected? So Unblock Health is my take on trying to remove those barriers. And it's a new tool that's directed directly for patients to use where they are to report these issues with data blocking and transparency. And my hope is that we can measure this over time and see how we're doing actually boots on the ground. Grace, when you talk about that, or you talk about cataloging some of these issues, I mean, this is a daily thing for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans. Mm -hmm. Our son was very, very sick, getting information to get to specialists over the course of two and a half years with nine specialists, a PCP, palliative care, all of these people. I mean, it was nightmarish. 
I alone mm-hmm. could have cataloged, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of instances of this going on. You know, when you think about that for the patient you serve in this kind of, Joy likes to say, if you, you know, the best way to eat an elephant is kind of one bite at a time, right? We have to start mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. When you think about this in the mass scale of what you've seen, what you know people encounter every moment of every day in America, you know, what is your hope for Unblock Health, you know, a year from now and five years from now? My hope is to show that patients do care, that they're very equipped, that they're very able, and that they have a voice and that these concerns matter and they're worth funding and they need to be enforced because a lot of these are essentially a crime. It's illegal. You have a right by law to access your information in a format as you request. And I want to say almost a human right. You can't block people from information. And we've seen so many accounts of prestigious, high up level public figures who have come forward and said, my loved one couldn't get their records. And I'm Joe Biden. I'm Seema Verma. This is trickling down to every single person that's in our local communities that has any diagnosis that is interacting with the healthcare ecosystem. My hope is also to document and measure what the incidence is. You know, I have to say I cringe when I see the list of top 100 hospitals come out. And I slightly cringe when I hear Press Ganey talk about patient experience and the thing that we're measuring, the parameters that we're measuring. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great work being done in healthcare. There's a lot of people putting their lives on the line to improve patients' lives and to improve outcomes, to reduce costs, to make the experience matter, to bring dignity and empathy back into the paradigm, to bring care back into healthcare. What I'm saying is, is that there's just this major disconnect and we can do so much better, but we need to acknowledge that this problem exists. We need to measure it and hold people accountable because this is not okay. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I'm really excited to see what you're doing there on really engaging patients to be able to do that and from a consumer perspective to talk about the prevalence of it because I think it's probably wildly pervasive. So. Transitioning kind of to our third question, and especially for you, you know, we in an industry that changes literally almost every hour of every day in all of the aspects of, you know, helping a patient as a solutionist with their journey, what are you reading to keep up with all this stuff or maybe listening to? Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners how, how you manage to stay abreast of what's going on in the industry or even, you know, mm-hmm. your clinical trials and stuff like that. I'd be interested to hear that as well. What are you reading? Sure. Where do you look for information? So here's the- I'll be honest, I'm obsessed with patient stories. So I don't work in an, in an office. It's not a desk job. I'm on the go at all times. I spend a lot of time in waiting rooms, infusion clinics, on public transportation. And usually when people find out what I do, they start telling me their stories, their loved one stories, their experiences, their losses. Some of the most touching things that I have been brought to tears by. And I listen to those. I don't have a podcast for you. I don't have a 
paper or article. I mean, I'm an avid reader. I love evidence-based medicine. I'm deep into clinical guidelines. I love conference abstracts. I use Twitter a lot to stay abreast. I follow hashtags virtually for any conference that's happening specifically in oncology. I try to follow all the key opinion leaders to see what data and things they're citing. I follow prominent reporters and I try to be open-minded to all perspectives. Twitter has really transformed my advocacy work because I can custom tailor it to follow the hashtags that I want and the leaders that I want. And there's many voices that I can routinely stay abreast of where I wouldn't have that in a single news channel or perhaps a single book or an article or journal. I love tweet chat. If I could, I'd tweet chat all day because the peer-to-peer health support groups are so amazing. I love BCSM, LCSM, BTSM. GYNCSM, Patient Chat, Healthcare Leader, Hit SM, Hit Reads is a virtual book club that I wish I could partake in more. But there is such a wealth of knowledge and it's real time and it's relevant. And the diverse perspectives of the people that are there are just mind blowing. That is a great answer. And actually, I love hearing that you're, you know what, what I do is I listen to patients and that's where you stay up up to date. What? Mm -hmm. How phenomenal. Grace, if people want to work with you, if they want you as their patient advocate, where can they find you? How can they get in touch? So my company's name, my practice's name is Enlightening Results. I do have a website. It's enlighteningresults.com. I'm on Twitter at Grace Cordovano. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And you you can just Google my name and I'll come up on a, on a number of different sites and things. So if there's a will, there's a way you can track me down. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us more about your journey into this space, what you're doing in your piece of the healthcare puzzle, Grace. We really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.